exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is 88.9 The Impact's one-hour forum discussing relevant issues affecting the MSU community. And now, tonight's Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In world news today, more than 100 people have been killed and many are missing after a tsunami was triggered by an earthquake off the coast of Indonesia, according to the BBC. Scores of houses were destroyed by waves after the 7.7 magnitude quake. It, it struck 13 miles under the ocean floor near the Mentawi Islands. Damage and rough weather are delaying efforts to reach the affected area. In Michigan news, business counselors from Michigan State University hosted a conference in Lansing today to help entrepreneurs launch their food products ideas into the marketplace, according to WKAR. The Making It in Michigan conference focused on product development, safety issues, and a keynote address highlighting changing consumer food trends in the U.S. Also in Michigan news today, an organization of Michigan State University law students will host a debate tomorrow focusing on the legal authority to determine U.S. marijuana laws, according to WKAR. Guest speakers will argue both in defense of greater state authority as well as in support of an existing federal statute that bans marijuana. MSU's chapter of Federalist Society is ignoring is excuse me, organizing the event. The Obama administration has taken a relaxed approach to enforcement of state medical marijuana laws. Next week, California voters will decide whether to decriminalize small amounts of marijuana for recreational purposes. The debate begins at noon and is open to the public. And on Exposure tonight, uh, we will be talking with the jazz and Africa rhythm-inspired singer Somi. She'll be performing at the Paysant Theater this Thursday. For more information, go to whartoncenter.com. Also on the show, we'll be talking about greater the Greater Lansing S- Sustainability Summit. We'll also be talking about evolution. We'll be talking about Char- Charles Darwin. Uh, and on the show right now, we have um, graduate students Jeff Clune and Heather Goldsby to talk about uh, the Beacon Center for Study the Study of Evolution in Action. Um, they are a part of a study that found how species can become altruistic. So, welcome to the show, uh, Jeff and Heather. Thank you. Uh, so, tell me a little bit what what is Beacon. So Beacon is broadly a center that actually just received funding at Michigan State and at four other partner universities. And so what it's really designed is to study evolution, not just as this thing that has occurred in the past, but really how it's affecting us right now, both in natural systems, in artificial systems within computers, and also how can we apply it to engineering challenges. And, and how does it work? I understand it's, it's your... You're looking at technology to observe evolution. How does that how does that work? When I think of that, I think of The Sims or I think of Gigapets <laughs> watching something on a computer screen evolution in action. So it can be a little bit like that at times. Um, so to be clear, only some of us are actually focused on the technological portion. Other people are studying it in natural systems like hyenas or bacteria. But for those of us who are studying it in sort of artificial life, what we really have is art- is evolution occurring within a computer. So we have a population of digital organisms, just like organisms in the wild. They're going to compete. They're going to compete for survival based on performing different tasks. And using this, we can sort of broadly understand evolutionary principles. And, and what are you mostly trying to find when it comes to the idea of evolution? So we're really, I mean, it's a very large set of researchers. So all of us are focused on sort of different parts of the question. So a lot of people are really focused on understanding just the overall principles of evolution. So like what role does mutation rate play? Things along those lines. Another large group of us are focused on sort of understanding cooperation. So from the evolutionary perspective, as um, we're going to talk a little bit more about later, it always makes a lot of sense for your genes to be really selfish and just to be focused sort of on their own ability to survive. But we don't just see that. Like organisms ranging from ant colonies to humans actually cooperate. So there's a lot of us kind of focused on understanding questions like that as well. So Jeff, let's bring you into the conversation. And can you tell us about um, specifically your study about um, altruism in the evolution and action um, idea and the idea of of altruism um, within different species? Sure. 
So as Heather was just mentioning, um, the, the existence of kindness in nature is actually one of the, uh, the top evolutionary puzzles, and Darwin himself talked about this. That when he first figured out that nature basically worked via survival of the fittest, the first picture that comes to mind are all of these animals kind of in a dog-eat-dog world trying to get ahead and you know, basically being as selfish as possible. But we see a lot of acts of kindness. For example, there are bacteria that will, that will sacrifice their lives to help their relatives. And there are vampire bats that will help out a fellow vampire bat by giving them some of the blood that they foraged that night. And so uh, we wanted to study when and in what situations organisms evolve to be altruistic. And so as Heather was saying, it's one thing to study organisms that have already evolved to be altruistic and try to figure out what they're doing. But what we can actually do in this system, because generations can happen really fast inside of a computer, is we can set up different evolutionary scenarios and say, okay, altruism evolved in this set of conditions, but not in this set of conditions, and why does it evolve, when does it pop up, and what might its evolutionary benefit be? And so that's what we did in this study. We wanted to uh, investigate one of the, the, the oldest explanations for altruism, which is that while an individual bacteria or, or vampire bat looks altruistic because it's helping its relative, there are actually selfish genes at play that are causing one organism to help about another organism because the recipient might share copies of the genes. So a selfish gene is actually trying to help out copies of itself. So the old joke is that you know, I might not give up my life for my brother, but I might give up my life for, say, three brothers, because there's a good chance that all of those brothers have copies of my genes. And so if there's a selfish gene in me, it might selfishly want to sacrifice me, Jeff, to help out three or four of my brothers, because the math works out that it will benefit a lot of its own copies. So we first wanted to test if that would work. We set up these digital uh, environments and had a whole bunch of selfish organisms that weren't helping each other. And then we gave them the ability to help each other. And it was up to them to see if they wanted to take advantage of that or not. And so these, these you know, altruistic yeah, intentions would mutate into the organisms. And those that happened to perform better uh, and survive would tend to take over the population. And what we found is that altruism did evolve according to the old theory, that the theory is right. These selfish genes do pop up and they cause organisms to be altruistic towards their relatives. So, so let me get this straight. So we're kind of born with altruistic tendencies, um, but in the end we definitely want to help out the ones that have similar genes to us. Is that, am I getting you right? That is right. So that's only, I, I do want to point out that's one of many uh, types of altruism that go on. And so we were studying one of them. There are other reasons that we might be altruistic, but that is one of the oldest ones. And you're exactly correct. That we have, we're kind of born with this tendency uh, to, that we're influenced by our genes to try to help out those individuals that will have copies of our genes. And those tend to be our relatives, our brothers or our children or our aunt, etc. And one of the interesting things that we were able to do in this study that would be impossible to do in a natural system is we said, okay, if the main reason why organisms on this planet help out their relatives is because relatives tend to have copies of, of you know, similar copies of genes, we could say, what would happen on a planet in which you could do better in terms of identifying whether or not another individual had copies of your genes than just making a bet, say, oh, my brother tends to have similar genes to me, so I'll be altruistic towards him. What if, say, you knew whether or not another individual had like 95% similar genes to you. And so what we did is we took, we took an entire population of organisms that were all being really nice to their relatives and not being nice to people that weren't unrelated. And then we just gave them the ability to know who in the population was really genetically similar. And what we found is all of the organisms soon evolved to stop being nice to their relatives and only be nice to those that were extremely genetically similar. So, so this is kind of an interesting study because it tells us on this planet the only reason we see altruism towards relatives is because that's kind of the best way that nature has of finding, you know, who has copies of your genes. If there was a better way, then nature would take advantage of it. And all of the stuff that we're so familiar with, being nice to your children or to your brother, all of those things could go away and you might be nice to somebody who shares gene, you know, spot T, 
for example. So the idea that you help people that have similar genes to you is in, in this study you found is once they knew that people had similar genes, they were more willing to help rather than the idea of like something like pheromones, which in which you're, you know, drawn to something you're, you know, if, if pheromones worked in a similar way, you'd be drawn to help someone because, you know, you don't even know why. But in this specific study, it's because you understand that they have similar genes rather than just being drawn to help someone because they have similar genes, if that makes any sense. So I do want to point out that these are organisms that don't have complex emotions and brains, so they're not, they're not thinking in any way. It's just whatever strategies they happen to have mutated into them that work really well tend to evolve. But um, at the base, your question uh, is an interesting one because it raises the idea that pheromones might be playing a similar role in humans in terms of you know, influencing our actions. And what they've actually found, and this isn't my work, but it's interesting work, is that uh, human females will, based on the smell of men, will preferentially pick males that have certain parts of their genome that are effectively optimal for their offspring. So this is complex called the MHC complex, which is involved in uh, you know, wh whether or not you get infection, you're basically in your immune system. And you want to have basically a shuffling of that deck, shuffling of those genes, very dissimilar genes, as much as possible. And so women are more attracted to men that have very dissimilar sections of their genome that code for that little complex. So we already have evidence that we are kind of picking out genetic information based on smell or pheromone or something like that. And so what this study basically posits is there might be other things going on that allow us to detect who else has similar genes that therefore influences our altruism. Well, I think it really brings up this question of what is the mechanism that we can use to identify either similar genes or dissimilar genes. So maybe you're using pheromones in one case. Maybe we're using, oh, you're related to me and thus you're likely to have the same genes. Or in our study, we can also just give them perfect information to know precisely if organisms have the same genes. And so when they know that organisms have the same genes, they're more likely... It's even better than kin. So kin is this rule of thumb that's like, if I have to guess, my kin are most likely to have my genes. But if I tell you this other organism is going to have the exact same genes, then that's even better. It's even more perfect knowledge. But why, why is it that, that um, organisms or humans or, or whatever it is that you guys are studying... Um, that why is it that people want to protect those with similar genes? It's because that you want a part of you to stay alive, or I wonder what that motivation is. And I mentioned, and I know Jeff, you said that those that you study do not have that emotional complex. But just out of curiosity, well, I think it's actually putting the cart before the horse. I think some of your emotional motivations come from these underlying strategies that don't require the emotions. So as you mentioned. Uh, you know, as you just referred to, there are these bacteria that implement these strategy, and Heather mentioned bees, and there are all sorts of animals that don't have complex emotions that still do things like these acts of kindness because those strategies make sense. And so I actually think that a lot of the emotions that go on in, in us um, are basically getting us to act according to a lot of these evolved strategies. So it's no coincidence that eating food makes us happy and, you know, you know, hooking up, you know, and making children is a very pleasurable experience. Our emotions are basically um, drivers to implement these evolutionary strategies. So in this case, one of the strategies is be altruistic towards your, your relatives, and then we kind of, these emotions kind of help us and cause us to do those behaviors. So just for, so our listeners know that may just be tuning in, I'm talking on the phone with Jeff Kloon and in the studio is Heather Goldsby, um, and they are a part of um, MSU's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution and Action, and they're a part of a study specifically to look at um, how species become altruistic. Now, Jeff, you mentioned in an MSU press release that one of the greatest things about di digital evolution is that it allows scientists to explore alternative evolutionary trajectories besides those that have already occurred on Earth. So what do you mean by that? Do you mean um, that the idea of being able to study evolution um, through a digital media, that you can explore possibilities that could have happened here on Earth, or the idea that you can explore possibilities on other planets? Well, you can actually do both. You can, evolution is a very general um, uh, process, and it could exist in a bunch of different environments. So if you wanted to say, what would happen on a world that never had water, for example? You could run a population of evolving organisms there. Or you could set up a population and say, what, if, what would happen if there was a certain planet in which you could immediately know 
all of the genes that your your that another organism had, and that's one of the things that we were basically able to do in this study. And so, what's nice about that is that you can have very perfect control as a scientist over your experimental conditions. So it would be hard in a natural system, for example, to have a whole bunch of organisms that were being altruistic towards only family members, and then suddenly give them the ability to only be altruistic towards organisms that shared 98% of their genes. We just don't know how to, you know, give bacteria or fruit bats the ability to know the genetic sequence of other organisms. But in digital um, evolution, that's very easy. And you could do it with other traits as well. You could suddenly give organisms, uh, you know, multiple legs or, you know, two brains or whatever, whatever it is that you want to study, you can change and then see what happens in that evolving world. Now, Heather, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, in Again, the study is a part of um, MSU's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution in Action. Um, what else does MSU hope to explore in regards to evolution with this project? So with this project, of course, we're continuing to look very broadly at cooperation and just a variety of different systems. So, for example, I look at understanding division of labor. So why do we see groups where organisms specialize and cooperate to survive? So this could be your ant colonies, where they all adopt very different roles, from the queen, who's in charge of all the replication, to different ants, which are in charge of either guarding the colony or in charge of procuring food or tending to the brood. We all have sort of these similar patterns. Um, other areas of beacon are interested more broadly in kind of understanding evolution in the wild. So, for example, in things like hyenas and understanding evolution in bacteria. So understanding kind of how that kind of work and also in then applying these to better understand um, problems that can result from evolution. So different things like evolving flu viruses. So how evolution is affecting that and how we can sort of combat it. Or how could potentially um, evolution be used to target cancer? Different things along these lines. Yeah, because I noticed um, in the MSU press release it talked about Beacon aims to solve real-world problems. So ideas of, you know, learning how you know, about the flu virus and, and learning how to combat flu it. Virus. Um, pesticides are another great example. So we have these pesticides and then we have different pests or different crops that become resistant to it and it takes off in directions that we've never even anticipated because of evolution. So sort of understanding the process and giving us insight to then address some of these challenges. So what would you say is the ultimate goal of Beacon? Wow, Beacon has... Concisely, I think so. I think the idea is that m many people think of evolution as something that has just occurred in the distant past. So now we're trying to actually show people how it can occur now. So whether it's the flu virus, or whether you're looking at it in a computer, or whether we're talking about it with populations in the wild, or using it to come up with different solutions that are applicable for engineering products. So it really is just sort of demonstrating the power of evolution across all of this and better understanding it. I think I think everything Heather says is right. I also think you could probably break it down more easily into two goals. But the first goal is a more of a biological one, which is to understand how evolution operates. And then the second goal is to port that knowledge over to the engineering side. So you know, evolution built hawks and jaguars and blue whales and humans. It's probably the most impressive designer we we know of. And what you can do is you can harness evolution to solve a lot of your problems, like diagnosing cancer or optimizing traffic flow or building artificial intelligence and evolving new digital brains. So I know um, that this, the idea, the, the study of altruism um, that you guys were involved in um, was just a part of this Beacon project. And I know, Jeff, you have now graduated and now are studying at Cornell University. That's right. Um, so is this study over then, the idea, the altruism study, or are you still continuing with it? One of the great things about science is that every time you, uh, you, know, you learn about an, a subject, you just, it raises more questions. So this study in particular raised a ton of questions that we're very interested in, and I'm in active collaboration with a lot of the members of Beacon. In fact, I have weekly meetings with them, and uh, we're still chasing down a lot of these questions on not only the evolution of altruism, but also how, you know, how intelligence evolved and how complex brains evolved. Uh, as well as complex morphologies and bodies. So the research is ongoing, not only on that question, but on many other fronts. So how long will, will Beacon um, be around for, do you guys think? So Beacon, the funding itself, currently is running for between three and five years, but I suspect it's going to become a very integral part of MSU, just on a whole continuing to the future. So we don't really envision it ever actually ending. 
Well, that's great. Well, uh, in the studio I have Heather Goldsby, and on the phone I have Jeff Kloon, uh, and they were on the show to talk about MSU's Beacon Center for the Study of Evolution and Action, as well as their findings of how species become altruistic. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Sunday nights, check out Sit or Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on the Impact. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. And staying on the topic of evolution, in the studio is geology professor Danita Brandt. And she's here to talk about the many misconceptions and uh, misunderstandings of Charles Darwin. Welcome to the show, Danita Brandt. Thank you, Emily. It's wonderful to be here. So let's let's start off by, can you tell us a little bit about um, Darwin's life and some, some interesting facts that many people may not know about? All right. I certainly don't want to uh, portray myself as a Darwin scholar because I will cede that position to another professor here on campus, Rich Bellin in Lyman Briggs, who is a true Darwin scholar. But I've gotten immersed in Charles Darwin. For years, I thought I would avoid Charles Darwin because plenty of people make their their lives, their hobbies out of studying Charles Darwin and his work. There's that much they could do. But uh, I got involved with Charles Darwin, and then you get sucked in because he's such a fascinating person. And he's so different from um, what most people think about the man. Some people, you say the name, and they instantly recoil for some reason that, oh, well, there's some bad connotation here with Charles Darwin. So I don't, I'm not too sure about the man. If um, people would just take the time to learn about Darwin, uh, read his uh, biography, or read, read about him, uh, they'd find that a lot of the ideas that they're carrying around in their minds, a lot of the things they think he said and think he meant with his writing and his, uh, his works, um, are just wrong. So at the top of that list uh, would be, um, oh, let's take something we've heard in the news recently by different commentators or candidates for office talking about uh, humans evolving from monkeys. Well, uh, Darwin didn't say that. And, uh, uh, but that's kind of a, a finer point of what he did say uh, in his ideas about explaining how do we get diversity of life on Earth, um, that uh, organisms, closely related organisms, share a common ancestor. So uh, humans and the great apes certainly share a common ancestor in the distant geological past. But the reason, another commentator said, well, I don't see monkeys turning into humans. The reason we don't see monkeys turning into humans today is that that train left the station seven million years ago when uh, there was a last common ancestor between a uh, branch that went on to become Homo sapiens, that's us, and the branch that went on to become apes. We could study apes longer than Jane Goodall, and we would never see one um, evolve into a human being. That's just, it's not the way it happens, and it's certainly not what Darwin said. Now, um, I understand that Darwin wasn't necessarily the one who invented the idea of evolution. Certainly not. The idea that uh, species uh, could change, uh, they, there is a wonderful Victorian word that they used, the mutability 
of species. That the idea that species were immutable, immovable, was um, uh, that had been discussed and discarded by thinkers um, hundreds of years before Darwin. You could trace back thought on that to um, to like Aristotle, and uh, uh, more closely to Darwin, he had many contemporaries who were arriving at the same notion that species could change. So he wasn't alone, and he wasn't the first. And Charles Darwin, to his credit, um, added a uh, a kind of prologue to his famous book on the origin of species, uh, in which he outlined the development of thought on, on species mutability. He wanted to give credit where credit was due. He didn't want people thinking that it was all his idea. He was actually a very modest and humble man. And, and I also understand he didn't coin the term survival of the fittest either. That's right. That's one of these things that um, it... Uh, if I have my facts right, uh, it was a term that came from economics, from a man named Herbert Spencer, who was a contemporary, I believe, of Darwin's. Richard Bellin can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, but it was his phrase from economics. But it, uh, it appealed to people. It seemed to be such a great way to encapsulate what people, how, how people interpreted what Charles Darwin was saying about the struggle and the race to survive and the strongest will are, are more likely to survive and the weak will perish, that it just uh, became a catchphrase. And it became so popular and so closely associated with Darwin's own work that in later editions of The Origin of Species, that book went through many editions. Again, I don't have the number of how many editions, but I think he added that to like the sixth edition. So he finally gave in, said, all right, all right, everyone, I'll use this phrase, survival of the fittest. But he wasn't the author of that phrase. I've also heard a rumor, and I don't know if this is true, I, I, I want you to clarify, um, that there may have been some inbreeding within Darwin's family. I have no idea. Well, he married his cousin. Emma Wedgwood was yeah. a cousin. And, of course, that wasn't, and, it, and it really, marrying your cousin isn't a bad thing. Oh. Uh, genetically, it's uh, not as bad as as, as people assume. Um, so I don't know if that's what we certainly. Well, I don't want to make any slurs about anyone sitting on a throne anywhere in the world right now about inbreeding. Uh, but no, I, I don't know anything other than uh, Darwin did marry his cousin Emma, and they had a long, happy marriage um, with, I believe, ten children. Wow! And uh, something that. Um, I wish more people knew about the man. He was a wonderful family man. Uh, the children had the run of the house. Uh, not that they were running over everything, but he involved them in his work. Um, uh, he studied them for, for one of his books about behavior. He studied his, his, he used his own children, just observing them, not doing experiments on them. Um, he was a wonderful father. And he was deeply, deeply... Um, hurt and saddened and, well, wounded, as, as any parent would be, when several of them died at various uh, stages in childhood. So in a way, he, had a, uh, he suffered uh, immense tragedy in the loss of, of his children. And with all the controversy sometimes that you see in schools about teaching evolution in biology classes, um, and there's controversy there, um, something that I learned today while I was doing a little bit of research is that Darwin studied to be a minister for a little bit. That's right. Uh, Charles Darwin's life story, how he, he found his groove, or whatever you want to call it, how he found his purpose in life, uh, I think should serve as an inspiration to a lot of us, especially um, students who are undergraduates who haven't found what it is they want to do yet. And it took, it took Charles um, a long time. He, uh, he had a physician uh, for a grandfather. He had a physician for a father, and it was certainly expected that he would be a physician. And he was packed off to medical school in Scotland and discovered that he couldn't stand uh, to witness the surgeries, the demonstration surgeries that took place at that time without anesthesia. And I certainly don't blame him. I would have passed out. They would have had to take me out of the room. So that didn't pan out. And his father was trying to find something to do with Charles. And they were um, a family of, of means. And uh, so 
at that time, there were certain things that were appropriate for a person of means to do and, and other things that wouldn't be appropriate. And having a, um, a country pastorate uh, was one of the acceptable things. So again, he was sent off to um, Cambridge, I think, uh, to study theology. Never got his degree, but did, did do a study in it. Uh, was never an ordained minister, but um, certainly uh, uh, was enrolled in, in studies. And, and fortunately, he got that invitation to sail on the Beagle, which is where he found his passion in natural history. Now, earlier in the show, we, we talked about uh, Beacon's evolution in action. And I'm just curious what, what your, your thoughts may be on that, and, and do you think Darwin would approve of, of such a study? I think Darwin would have an office over there, and he would be the first one uh, pecking away on a keyboard, uh, designing new life forms and uh, running virtual experiments. I think he would be tickled. He would be ecstatic to see this kind of attention. Uh, it would take him a while to recognize what is happening, because even though uh, in his own work he was able to predict a lot of things that we have uh, confirmed, uh, genes were not discovered when, uh, before uh, Darwin wrote Origin of the Species, and he, he would have a lot of catching up to do, but I think it would look very familiar to him. Okay. And also, um, I should mention that, that you're in, in, involved with Darwin Discovery Days at MSU Museum. Do you want to just mention that a little bit? I sure do. I'd like to put a, a, a notice out for that. Um, this is something we do every year on campus. It's one of our few science-centric events over at the MSU Museum. Uh, it's held on a Sunday afternoon uh, near Darwin's birthday. Uh, he was born February 12th. Uh, and the same day, by the way, here's a little Darwin trivia, the same day as Abraham Lincoln. So there's something to just kind of adjust your, uh, your mental time scale to. Uh, so we have this every year around his birthday. Uh, there is birthday cake to celebrate the birthday. Uh, but we also, we, we try to do two things with this event. We try to help people discover the man who Charles Darwin was and try to correct some of those misconceptions we've been talking about. And we also use it as uh, an excuse to showcase research that's going on here at Michigan State. And as we've seen by, um, especially listening to the, uh, the Beacon presentation, uh, defining evolution has become much broader. It's not confined to purely organic systems. Basically, everything evolves, starting with the Big Bang, and everything's been evolving since. Well, in the studio, I have Professor Danita Brandt, and she's um, a professor of geological sciences, and she was in here in the studio to talk about Darwin, the idea of evolution, and some of the misconceptions about about. Uh, the man, Charles Darwin. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Emily. You're listening to Exposure. Right, thank you. The Impact. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. A lot of gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student, is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, The Impact's Progressive Torch and Twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. Welcome back to Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and in the studio is Darrell Slaughter. He is the director of Green Nation, which held a great, held the Greater Lansing Area Sustainability Summit last weekend. Welcome to the show, Darrell. Thanks for having me. So what is Green Nation? Well, Green Nation, you can kind of, if you want to kind of put it, it's, you can say it's like a larger classroom project to kind of say. Um, it was birthed out of conversations from my former professor when I was at Wayne State University, uh, he was a philosophy professor. We used to have conversations about social justice and different issues, uh, you know, that were going on. You know, poverty in terms of, 
you know, why are certain people not getting jobs or don't have the means to do certain things. And then out of that conversation or those meetings, we came up with this, you know, notion that there has to be some type of new calling or new organization to try to rally people together. And I don't remember how we stumbled upon green or sustainability, but we started to talk about green and, and start noticing that it was, it was a great connection between poverty and some of the social ills and how we can use it to uh, uplift people. Yeah, because sometimes they say that people that suffer the most from environmental issues is usually um, the people that have the least. Absolutely, absolutely. So talk about the summit that happened this weekend. Yeah, we had a, we had a two-day summit. Um, it was uh, Friday and sa- this past Friday and Saturday. I uh, had a great speaker, uh, Reverend Lennox Yearwood, uh, out of Washington, D.C. works for an organization called Hip Hop Caucus. Talked about how he uses hip hop to talk to younger people about green because sometimes green is not a an exciting thing to talk about or, or even engage into. But how he has been using hip hop to you know bring in some of those non traditional people uh, into the green movement. He's gotten artists like Drake to talk about green, Ti uh, talk about green, you know things like that. And he's you know he's having great success and. You know, he came to the summit, had a, a great talk with us. You know, for all with myself, I actually learned a lot. We talked to all our participants in uh, the summit, so that was a great thing. We had different workshops. We talked about uh, entrepreneurship and and how we can get people into green and uh, entrepreneurship, trying to create their own green businesses. Um, There's a whole host of workshops and speakers. You know, that happened throughout the two-day weekend. So it's a great event. And. And I was looking at your your website, and you mention um, urban Michigan a lot. You use that phrase. Uh, what does urban Michigan include? And wh- what places are those, and, and what does urban Michigan look like? Well, we can start out by saying, I mean, the biggest city can be considered urban uh, Michigan, Detroit, you know. But we can be talking about a Flint, uh, Lansing, Grand Rapids, you know, even a Benton Harbor. Those are couple of our urban, I mean, just to mention a couple of our urban cores in Michigan. Now, these urban centers that exist throughout Michigan tend to have, uh, you know, underrepresented people, minorities, um, and also tend to suffer from, uh, you know, some most, I mean, the most poverty, you know. They're suffering from lack of jobs, uh, health, education. I'm sure uh, you and your listeners heard about the, the horrible education system that's happening in Detroit, you know. So these are the areas that need, in our opinion, need, need the most focus on and need the most help. So. And what do you think um, are the biggest issues or concerns that you have in the Lansing area? In the Lansing area, I think a lot of, there's a lot of things going on in the Lansing area in terms of investing green infrastructure into the area. But I think the biggest problem people don't know about, they don't have the information um, they're, they're completely disconnected. There's all these things going on up top, and you know people are not you know aware of what's going on. I mean, they're not they're not, they don't have a seat at the table, and a lot of these people, a lot of decisions are being made without their you know opinion. You know, so you know just getting people to understand what's going on, and maybe if you know maybe they can reconsider some of the things that they're doing. Make have actual take people input, you know, have, uh, you know, so maybe they can reconsider how they're doing a certain design or something like that in terms of green infrastructure. You know, so to me, that's just, that's probably the biggest problem, you know, in the, in the area. So you're saying you want to see more ways that, let's say, local governments are reaching out to get Absolutely. the community's voice involved. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and do you feel like you, you helped with that process during the summit this past weekend? We, we, we look at the summit as the, the, as the beginning of that process. And, you know, by doing that, and also we want to make sure that we start connecting the different areas of green together because I was just talking to uh, somebody earlier how when we talk about green, green is a very contextual word. When we talk about green, maybe, maybe just talking about climate change. When we talk about green, another way we're talking about alternative energy, but never all together, you know. So it, it, we need to start connecting green jobs, uh, environmental justice, climate change, alternative energy all together under one banner so that you, know, you have this huge uh, movement that will actually be able to help everybody. But the, the summit was, you know, as a starting point to not only educate people but begin that process. And and what does Green Nation do throughout the year that people may be able to get involved in? Sure, we hold different events, like for example, like the summit we just have. We have we're going to dedicate ourselves to having a summit in March and October. Uh, 
one in Detroit in March, and then next year in October in Lansing. Um, we, we're constantly uh, partnering with different existing uh, uh, organizations, environmental organizations. Uh, we've worked a lot with Repower America, who, who does a lot. And they do a lot of work uh, in terms of campaign stuff. Um, you know, we just you know you can look out for us. We're gonna we're we're trying to revamp ourselves and and get more uh, connected to a lot of things that are going on out there. Instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, we just try to you know hitch on to others and try to add a, our, our extra little worth onto events. So, and where can people go for more information? Well, I recommend people go onto our Green Nation. That's spelled with one N, so O U R G R E N A T I O N dot org, and they can find all information about some of the things we'll be doing in the future. So. Well, in the studio I have Darrell Slaughter. He's the director of Green Nation, and they held a the Greater Lansing Area Sustainability Summit last weekend. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. And up next, um, we have um, an interview with Somi. She is a jazz and African and rhythm-inspired singer. And up next uh, is a song that, that uh, she sang off of her newest album, and she will be performing at Passant Theatre here in East Lansing on Thursday. More information can be found at whartoncenter.com. Somi, she will be performing at the Passant Theater this Thursday. Welcome to the show, Somi. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, how would you describe your music? Oh, how would I describe music? Well, somewhere between Africa and jazz and soul traditions. Um, I'm originally from East Africa, Rwanda, Uganda specifically, uh, but I grew up mostly in Illinois and a few years in Zambia as well, and I live in New York City. So I've been influenced by a great deal of uh, different social and cultural layers and colors and textures and such. Um, so you sing three African African languages in this album? Yes. Yeah. Uh, mostly in English, but then I do try to incorporate, um, as I said, you know, blending in the African tradition as well. Uh, I do try to bring in linguistically and uh, rhythmically and, and musically um, those different influences of, you know, where I'm from, um, Culturally, so I uh, do sing in Swahili and Miranda and Rutoro as well, but um, the, the record is primarily in English and, and sprinkles of other languages. <laughs> and can you talk about your um, experiences or relationship with music you had growing up, understanding that um, you know you are from Eastern Africa, however, you grew up, I think, was it in Chicago or the Chicago area? Um, and your parents. Not really Chicago, more Champaign, Illinois, which is a huge difference. It's a small college town about two hours out, so. Most Chicagoans try to remind me that I'm not from the big city. <laughs> right. Well, growing up, let's say, growing up in Illinois, um, how have you been influenced by the various music you've been um, surrounded by since, you know, you've been growing up? Well, um, 
growing up in an African home, you know, I listened to a lot of traditional stuff. My mother sang a lot of the old, you know, traditional folkloric um, music. My father listened to a lot of what people classify as world music, even though I, I loathe the term. Um, he listened to a lot of, you know, roots and, and like that sort of um, world beat, what we often call world beat and world music. So I was exposed to a lot of music from other parts of the world beyond Africa and the U.S., also like different parts of Asia and all of that. So, um, and also growing up in a university town in an international community of, of people, always in the home. Um, my parents' friends were from all over the world. I was in, I was able to uh, to learn a lot about other parts of the world and, and try to have a wider. And been fortunate enough to have parents who encouraged a, a pretty broad worldview and encouraged that. So, um, influenced by all those things, I, w- I would like to believe that that's heard in the music. Uh, my mother also listened to a great deal of Western classical music, so I was um, very influenced by a lot of. Uh, of that music, I studied the cello from the time I was eight um, through university level. So, um, so many <laughs> different uh, influences. Yeah, the most surprising thing that comes out in the music, I would say, is jazz, because I, you know, oftentimes people call me a jazz vocalist, and I understand why that is, but I think that um, because I never really grew up listening to jazz, and, you know, um, in, in college, I think it was the first time I heard. I love Fitzgerald. Uh, I think that was the first real moment that I started listening to jazz vocalists. And so it's sort of surprising at times that I'm like, how did I end up in this world and in this space and people calling me a jazz vocalist? But I think that the only thing that seems to make sense in terms of an answer for that question is, is that jazz is the genre that really demands a certain type of improvisation and a really clear individual voice. And having all those influences from Rwanda, Uganda, Illinois, Zambia, and now New York, um, and all of the other things that are sort of shaped who I am, I think that jazz is really the only genre that is open enough to really um, embrace the stories that I'm trying to tell and the music I'm trying to share. And you're, you're talking about these different backgrounds, and I also understand that the band that plays with you also comes from a variety of different backgrounds. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, I have a longtime pianist named Toru Dodo. He's from Japan. Um, playing together for about six years, and uh, I have a guitarist who I'm not, he's not coming to this particular one. The guitarist is accompanying me for the Michigan tour. Is also a longtime collaborator and friend named Liberty Elman, and he's British American, and he um, is on the record as well. But there's a guitarist as well who's also on the record. He's from Senegal and Paris, and um, another the percussionist on the record is from Ivory Coast. Um, and then just a cadre of a cadre of uh, fantastic jazz musicians from from New York City that uh, were gracious enough to share their music and talent with with my project. Um, and also the great Hugh Masekela um, is a special guest on the record as well. And obviously he's a South African uh, trumpeter, very well known sort of legend and iconic. And so that was a dream and an honor to have him involved. So you're getting people from all over the world um, coming together and collaborating with you with this music. And I can see there's a lot of different influences from all over the world in your music, which I think is really great. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I, I understand you've collaborated with people like John Legend, Mostaf, and Paul Simon. Yes, I have uh, performed with them. John is actually a friend uh, that I knew before he became known as John Legend to the world. So... Um, we did a couple of shows uh, together in New York, and um, and I've been fortunate enough to, to remain friends. Um, and then Paul Simon, uh participated in uh, a tribute concert that I did for uh, Miriam Makeba, first lady of African song, the first African woman to win a Grammy, and sort of you know enter the global cultural stage. So um, I met Paul then, and we were able to perform on the same stage together, and that was wonderful experience and opportunity and um, and, a, and a huge moment in my career to be able to, to pay homage to Mary Michaela at that moment um, and with him and Harry Belafonte and so many other people, Randy Weston, so many people who, who were there that night. Um, and who's the other person that you mentioned? Oh, Mosef. So Mosef, um, you know, he's somebody from Brooklyn and I, you know, you see him in the art scene in New York and, um, we met him a few years ago when I was invited to participate in a 
in an anti-police uh, brutality project that came out after Amadou Diallo. I don't know if you remember that story, but it was a young African immigrant who was shot down for, with 41 bullets, and he was unarmed and totally innocent. And so myself and two other African artists wrote a song and, and recorded it, and uh, it was my first time on the radio. That song got picked up by New York Radio, and there was a little bit of a buzz around that. And uh, we were invited to participate in the project that, that most replicated. And so that was when I first met him and had the opportunity to collaborate with him. So um, definitely been, there have been a lot of blessings along the way, and I'm thankful for that. You're talking about some collaborative work in which um, there's, you know, benefit concerts. Talk about some other work that you've done, um, humanitarian work you've done in Africa and and also in in different places around the world. Um, Well, my focus usually is mostly um, towards Africa, mostly because that's where my heart is and that's where my family is from, so I try to get back to the community from whence I came. And... uh, I would say some of that work, I mean, after college I went, had a research fellowship and, you know, did some community service and, and volunteer work and research work with children affected by HIV AIDS, um, and that really sort of shaped my, I guess, um, my outlook as an adult, and kind of always, I kind of always go back to that particular moment in my life, and uh, for grounding, you know, just to kind of remember people who were worse off than myself and uh, many of us who are fortunate enough to be here in the States and who've been given the opportunity that my parents sacrificed so much for me to have. So um, that, that's one aspect of it. And then in terms of I really try to, I would like to consider myself a cultural activist because I I do try to figure out ways to empower other artists, specifically um, women artists and uh, Africans as well. So I, I started an organization called New Africa Live, a nonprofit organization. It started as a, a series that I was doing every couple of months and just out of a passion, as a passion project. But it grew immensely um, that first year, 2008. Um, at the end of the year, I realized other people were looking for the same thing, if you will, and that thing was really trying to see contemporary African artists working in literary, visual, and performing arts, um, really seeing those those stories and really seeing the work of those artists and that modern cultural production coming out of the continent and its diaspora, seen in the uh, you know in the, in the platform, seen on the stages and the, within the context that it, it deserves to be seen. And you would think that in a place like New York City, being such a global city and a center of the an epicenter of the art world, that we would have um, sort of an edge on on you know all of the new anything kind of new and contemporary and any any form of art, um, and uh, we, I just, out of frustration, I suppose, by fr- frustration with seeing um, the same artists presented and sort of representing what Africa is, and not to, dis- to disrespect those artists, because I appreciate them and I celebrate them because of what they, uh, you know, the legacy and the foundation they've laid for myself and other young artists, African artists, but understanding that we, too, as Africans, evolve and move forward and... Um, and are equally impacted by this very, um, you know, the, by globalization, by the digital age, by this era of, you know, instant informational <laughs> information and exchange. Um, so really wanted to celebrate that. And so I started um, this series. It's now a nonprofit organization, and I have um, sponsored, I'm sponsored by both the city of New York and the state of New York. Um, and uh, it's, you know, I do it when, I, when my schedule affords, the time, I actually uh, do try to produce a few shows, but again, it's about every two months I produce a show celebrating, you know, contemporary or modern African artists uh, working in, as I said, visual, literary, and performance art. So it's been a wonderful project and it gives me a great sense of reward and hopefully continues to help artists, um, you know, both at home on the continent and abroad. My final question for you is what can people expect at your show this Thursday? What can they expect? Well, hopefully um, hopefully they'll travel a bit. Hopefully the the music and the stories um, and the songs will allow them the opportunity to travel beyond Michigan and um, I'm really just coming to share my heart so I hope to to meet people and I hope the people are open to, to listen well for our listeners on the phone is Somi she'll be performing at Payson Theater this Thursday thank you so much for joining us today thank you thank you I'm looking forward to the show thanks so much for, for having me on the air
Step number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Saturday nights from 8 p.m. until 2 a.m., tune into the cultural vibe to hear the best in both local and national hip-hop, plus live mixing on the ones and twos. Impact Prime Time. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. For the Michigan Storytelling segment, I'm Max Katsarelis, reading Anywhere But Here. I tend to wish I was anywhere but here, all the time. Here could be anywhere, really. Farmington Hills, East Lansing, New York City, or Tempe. Every place that isn't where I currently am is exotic and seemingly far more interesting. New York City, a place with more stories happening at once than a Guy Ritchie film, is already less appealing to me than the Upper Peninsula back home. Thing is, I know when I get home, I won't go to the UP. I think about it now and how wonderful it will be, but I won't go. I'll have no time when I get home because I'll be on a rush. I have to move into my house up at school, go to the dentist, and catch up with friends I haven't seen for months. Always a rush. When I went to Tempe a few months ago, I felt rushed to get back home so I'd have time to do my grocery shopping before winter semester. Seriously. Sure, it was a great experience, the drive alone made it worthwhile, but I still found myself craving to be somewhere else. Towards the end of the semester this spring, I mentally checked out of Michigan, knowing I'd be coming to work in New York City. Nothing to see here in Michigan, I thought, as I compiled a list of places to see and do in the city this summer. It's like when I'm reading the news, my Twitter feed, or blog posts. I get sidetracked by a link, conversation, phone call, text message, or email. Sometimes I'll finish an article or blog post, but most times I won't. Instead of feeling overwhelmed the other day because of too much work, I felt overwhelmed because I couldn't keep up with the design, idea, advertising, and culture world constantly feeding me information on the web. 
I need to ask myself, what's the rush? Where am I right now and what am I supposed to be doing? I need to refocus and appreciate what is in front of me. I'm a person. I need to interact with people too, not just my computer. I don't need to constantly consume digital information. I need to slow down, and I mean really slow down. I need to take the same approach with everyday occurrences too. Right now, I'm working in New York City, meeting great people, and trying some of the most unique eateries I can stumble upon. Chinese, Indian, Thai, Mexican, Venezuelan, Japanese, Greek, Indian, Lebanese. I've eaten it. This place offers rare opportunities, and I need to appreciate every last moment. Then, when I get back home and experience the culture shock of driving in school, I'll be able to appreciate my family, my last year of college, and maybe most importantly, the cheap beer prices. Every place has something to offer. I just need to take the time and appreciate what is around me. And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was Max Katsarellis with his story, Anywhere But Here. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.